Good morning, everyone. Um, this morning's scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 through 16. You'll find this on page 898 in the Bibles under the chairs in front of you. And it will also be on the screen for you to follow along. If you're physically able, please stand in honor of the reading of God's word. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting with verse 1. Now concerning the matters which you wrote, it is good for a man to not have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single, as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so, in such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Lord, in your providence, we have before us yet another good but difficult text. Um, and we have, my goodness, do we have such a diverse room when it comes to receiving these texts. And we are in such different places. And so I want to give you praise, O oh Lord, for their ability, your agility, and being able to minister to all of these different people at the same time in ways that I cannot possibly do as a human, weak pastor and preacher. And so we call upon you, Lord, for help. We expect that you will move in different people in different ways, and we thank you for that. Holy Spirit, uh, would you use this time to change us and to increase our affections for you? We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're wading into some waters this morning and also two Sundays from now as well, so we're going to have like a part one and then eventually we're going to have a, a part two. We're wading into some waters this morning that are choppy for many people. Some of us are happily married. Some of us are happily single. Praise God. 
But some of us are unhappily married. A Pew Research study in 2019 suggesting that 58% of married people believe their relationship is going very well. 37% say their relationship is going um, fairly well. <laughs> cough, cough. And then 5% are basically miserable. Given the cynicism these days about marriage, those numbers might actually be better than you were anticipating. But at the same time, 42% of married people say their marriage is something less than great. The data on singleness is harder to gauge, partly because singleness can be a very diverse and complex experience. Some people are single and don't desire marriage at all. Others are genuinely content with their singleness and enjoying many things about it, yet simultaneously desiring marriage and potentially sad or discouraged that they're not married. Others are not at all satisfied, if they're being honest, with their singleness and really struggling with their circumstances. And all of this is very hard to put on a pie chart, as you can see. So why make our way into these kinds of waters? I mean, the, the past two weeks have already been emotionally challenging enough, haven't they? Right, can we just do a sermon this morning on why you should floss? Can we, just, can we just take a break? And I picked that example because Christians tend to have two preachers that work in their lives, their pastor and their dentist. I think dentists have very hard jobs. It's just that their preaching is a lot easier. They're like, you know, have you been flossing? And then you're like, well, not really, which is just a polite way of saying not at all. Um, and then they're like, well, you really should be flossing every single day. And that's a really compelling sermon at the moment, because as they floss your teeth, it's a bloodbath, so there's no argument at all. <laughs> Raise your hand, not really, but maybe. Raise your hand if you start flossing a week or so before you go to the dentist to try to keep that from happening. You really shouldn't be doing that, though. You should floss every day, amen? But we're not talking about flossing today. We're talking about marriage and singleness because that's where the Lord brings us as we continue our 1 Corinthians series and make our way into chapter 7. And it is quite good, let me tell you, for the Lord to bring us here because, as we will see this morning, God is the God of marriage and singleness, both of which turn out to be gifts in different ways when pursued with gratitude according to God's wisdom and plan. So we'll have something for everybody today and then two Sundays from now, uh, something for those of us who are flourishing as married or single people, for those of us who are not flourishing as married or single people, uh, some eyebrow-raising things, as you could tell when this passage was read, that contradict our contemporary moment, but also bless and encourage us if we are willing to listen. Two reflections as we make our way through the first part of chapter 7. And then again, as I said, we'll do a part two on these themes two Sundays from now on account of the structure of this chapter. If you read through the whole thing, you'll see what I'm talking about. So two reflections this morning as we do our part one. Number one, we're going to talk about the goodness of marital intimacy. And then secondly, we're going to talk about the goodness of staying where you are. The goodness of marital intimacy and then the goodness of staying where you are. So first, the goodness of marital intimacy. Up until this point in 1 Corinthians, Paul has been responding to reports 
he's been hearing about the Corinthian church. See, for example, the comments he made back in chapter 1, verse 11. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. And you see the same sort of thing at the beginning of chapter 5. Now in chapter 7, there's a very significant pivot. Paul begins his response to a letter from the Corinthian church dealing with matters pertaining to a lot of things, including sexuality and marriage. And it is so, so important to keep that in mind as we make our way through this chapter. Paul is not building a full theology here of marriage and sexuality. He's responding pastorally to specific questions and concerns. And to gain a full understanding of what Paul thinks about marriage, which are, of course, God's thoughts about marriage, because Paul's letters are part of inspired scripture. To gain that full understanding, you have to consider Paul's other writings along with these, Ephesians 5, to give one example, being another key segment. Look at the first question that Paul addresses here in chapter 7, verse 1. Hey, Paul, it's good for a man to not have sexual relations with a woman, right? And what's implied here is that it would be good to avoid sexual relations because it would be more spiritual to do so and less carnal. The city of Corinth was this really fascinating mix of licentiousness in some pockets and then asceticism in others. So some people were like, let's just do whatever we want, and some people were like, we should do nothing. Both were present in Corinth. To which Paul responds, and you can see this in verses 2 through 5, by telling them, well, no. If a man and a woman are married, sexual relations should be a part of their marriage. The husband should give his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For, and this is verse 4, and this is wild given the cultural setting, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And actually, if you think that's something, verse 5 might be even more shocking. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I'm not sure that I can sufficiently emphasize how revolutionary this idea was that the husband and wife should be agreeing together or consenting to have sex or agreeing together to not have sex temporarily. At the time in the Roman Empire, which Corinth was, of course, part of, men had all of the agency, both within marriage and outside of marriage, with very rare exceptions for women of high social status. You can even see it in the way the Corinthians couched their statement in verse 1. Is it good, check this out, for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman? The man has the agency. And then Christianity crashes onto the scene saying, actually, men and women both have agency. And oh, by the way, look back at verses 3 and 4. Husbands and wives both have rights 
and they both have authority over their own bodies. Glenn Scrivener helps us appreciate how countercultural all of this was. This is once again from his book, The Air We Breathe, which I referenced last week as well. In the ancient world, the gods were violent abusers. Sexual agency was solely in the hands of powerful men, and sexual misbehavior consisted in the violation of reputations, not of bodies or wills. Into this world came the Christian revolution, where sex is painted on the canvas of divine romance, and where two equals unite in a sacred and unbreakable bond, all of which captured human hearts initially and especially those most bruised by the brutalities of the day. And notice that for God honoring sexuality in line with this design, you are giving, you hear that, you are giving your spouse their conjugal rights. Both spouses are giving, not taking. A whole, whole bunch of ink has been spilled the last few years concerning the so-called purity culture. Most of that ink, highly critical. This is a culture, a movement that many millennials and even some younger Gen Xers experienced if they grew up in the church, a culture that put a lot of emphasis on, among other things, sexual abstinence until marriage and promoted purity rings, if you've heard of those and things of that sort. To the degree that the movement was a well-meaning attempt to help youth pursue biblical faithfulness pertaining to sexuality, we can be very thankful for that. However, it would appear as though some heard that purity culture messaging as something like, if I wait now, then later I get. If I wait now, then later on I get. So then, if they eventually do get married, they end up with a very consumptive, I deserve this view of marital intimacy that ends up causing all kinds of disappointment and harm, a posture that looks absolutely nothing like the giving that Paul describes here in chapter 7. And while we're on the subject, if you marry someone, you are making a covenant before God to love and serve them sacrificially across the board we're just applying this broad theme right now to marital intimacy. Which means, since we're on the subject, that dating, which is not addressed directly in Scripture, but whatever it is, dating is an opportunity to discern whether or not you're the right person to sacrificially love the person you're dating, given the way that God has made that person. And conversely, developing these really extensive lists of criteria that your potential spouse needs to adhere to is not a particularly Christian mindset, and it sets you up to be more of a taker than a giver. Not to mention the fact that most of us making these extensive lists don't meet the standards of our own lists. Like, I'm looking for someone who's kind and patient and good-looking. Like, have you looked in the mirror? I mean, listen, Hello. When married couples commit to serving one another, the good news is that there's some real beauty and riches there. It costs you something, but there's so much beauty, there's so much richness, which applies to sexual relations, among many other things in a marriage. 
So then the question is, why does Paul say that marital intimacy is beneficial because of the temptation to sexual immorality, verse 2, and so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control, verse 5. Why does he say that? You know, isn't that rationale fairly carnal and self-interested, contradicting everything we've just been talking about? No, because Paul isn't presently talking about why somebody should get married. And he's not building a full theology of marriage, which I alluded to earlier. Instead, he's saying, if you are married, sexual relations should normally be a part of your marriage as God has designed them to be, contra some thinking that was apparently becoming popular in Corinth, maybe among some philosophers. It's not spiritually advantageous or impressive to avoid these relations, and in fact, artificially burdening married couples, which was happening in Paul's day, with this requirement for celibacy might really backfire if those spouses end up looking for sexual fulfillment elsewhere, causing very serious damage to the one fleshness of their marital covenant and to others in their community they might become involved with and possibly even causing damage to their own salvation. Recall our discussions back in chapter 6 about that. Of course, marriage is about far, far more than sex. A consideration that is important on a lot of levels and of great comfort for married couples who have difficulties with intimacy for medical reasons or otherwise. But marriage isn't not about it either. God designed marriages to be sexually active within a framework of mutual love and care in which spouses are listening to one another, prioritizing the interests of one another, and avoiding postures that are demanding or manipulative. And in that sense, Christianity, you might say, is pro-sex, contra the writers of the letter that Paul was addressing. And this is suggests, by the way, it doesn't guarantee it. This would suggest... I, I think this is relevant to bring up. It doesn't guarantee it, but it suggests that couples who have been married for a while and learned how, how best to care for each other sacrificially have the most fulfilling physical intimacy. And guess what? That's exactly what the data shows. Married couples who have been together for about 10 to 15 years <clears throat> rate their intimacy more highly than anybody else, married or unmarried. If you are married and intimacy is a challenge, which is for, it is for a lot of couples. You're not alone, let me tell you. It's really worth it to look for help despite the sensitivity of the subject. Churches and counselors and medical professionals have resources that can really help with this. If you reach out to us here at City Church, we will respond with compassion. We will walk with you towards healing and wholeness. So Christianity is pro-sex. And yet, here's the turn. There is so much goodness in staying where you are. Wait, what? Yes. And let's see what this means. What in the world we're talking about and why this is the case. So the first reflection, we talked about the goodness of marital intimacy, and now the second, the goodness of staying where you are. Because of the goodness of marital intimacy, surely everyone should get married, right? 
Nope. There is plenty of goodness to be found in singleness as well. Look at verse 6. Now is a concession, not a command. I say this. I wish, this is Paul speaking, that all were as I myself am, that is, unmarried. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. So marriage is a gift, but also so is singleness. And in fact, Paul is enjoying his gift so much that he wishes other people would enjoy it with him. So even though married couples should certainly enjoy marital intimacy, there's a sense in which Paul agrees with the statement back in verse 1 about a man and a woman not having sexual relations if we are talking about singleness. Which is why he counsels widows in verse 8 that there is some very real goodness in remaining single as he is. And therefore, there's no need for them to rush back into marriage. As good as it is to be married and to enjoy marital intimacy, singleness, even though intimacy isn't a part of it in the physical sense, is also very good. In two weeks from now, I promise we will have a lot more to say about the goodness of singleness. It is coming in part two. But at the same time, verse 9, if these widows have a strong desire to remarry, such as to regain the relational and physical intimacy they once enjoyed, that's still a solid choice as well, because, as we just discussed, there's very real goodness in marriage. So married or single, God's goodness and purpose abound, giving us very strong reasons for true contentment and joy wherever we find ourselves. Marriage and singleness are different, but they are both gifts. Do you believe that? And mind you, everywhere that we are shows the world something beautiful about the way God relates to his people. This is Sam Alberry in his book, The Seven Myths of Singleness. He says, marriage demonstrates the shape of the gospel, the marital dance we've been talking about that's a mysterious cosmic reference to Christ and his church. And singleness demonstrates the sufficiency of the gospel, that all we really need is Christ. So here's the thing, and this is really important, City Church. It's a mistake to pursue marriage because we don't think that there's any goodness to be found in singleness. And it's a mistake to pursue singleness because we don't think there's any goodness to be found in marriage. Pursuing either one of those, when the soil of our lives is seeded with discontentment, is a recipe for disappointment and honestly selfishness, both of which end up harming ourselves and other people. And by no means, is this just a temptation for single people? That's thus Paul's counsel to married people. You can see it in verse 10 and 11, which Paul wants you to know comes right from Jesus himself. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. We're going to talk about that two weeks from now. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Plenty of married people in seasons of difficulty or discord fantasize about getting out to enjoy the supposedly simpler 
less complicated rhythms of singleness, or perhaps they fantasize about being with a different partner. I'm not talking here about married people who are dealing with abuse or whose spouse has been unfaithful. I am talking about married folks dealing with the normal difficulties of marriage, which in certain seasons can become rather intense. If this describes you, and I am positive that it does describe some people in this room, please know that even during those seasons, the goodness of your present marriage remains. Nothing about God's design or purposes for your marriage has changed. Meaning that there's so much goodness to be found in fighting for your marriage and staying right where you are, trusting in God's plan and provision. And to encourage those of you who find yourselves in that kind of season, even this morning, Things often do improve in time, especially when you bring your spiritual family into your difficulties and allow them to love you and care for you and speak truth to you. One of the reasons for this is that even when there have been grievous wrongs and hurts in our marriages, the grace of God poured out for us in Christ is so magnificent that it makes sense for spouses to show grace to one another and to forgive one another. In being that, when we're in Christ, our identities are staked in Him. Now, we can humbly repent and ask for forgiveness when we need to because our identities are no longer grounded in being right all of the time or in being the perfect spouse. Paul, but should I stay where I am in marriage even if I'm a believer and my spouse is not a believer? What about that? Paul responds to this question. You can see the response in verses 12 through 14 explaining that this instruction is coming from him as an application of what Jesus taught because Jesus didn't address this question directly. But to be very clear, the providential inclusion of Paul's applications here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 give them authoritative biblical weight. There's nothing take it or leave it about any of this because you know this is just what Paul thinks. Look at verses 12 through 14. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. This circumstance in which you are a believer and your spouse is not a believer is one of the most painful circumstances you can find yourself in on this side of heaven, especially if you are growing in your love for Jesus and enjoying him. The ache of your spouse not sharing in that enjoyment can be overwhelming, and there are often very real implications for your weekly rhythms, how you parent, and so forth. But here's a word of encouragement. Are you ready for this? Christ at work in the life of a believer through the Holy Spirit is so powerful that it does have some sort of sanctifying effect 
on their unbelieving spouse. There's no guarantee here that the spouse will become a believer, but the presence of a believing spouse in the life of an unbelieving spouse, hear me on this, is never for nothing. It's never for nothing. For example, it is fair to say that it's more likely that the unbeliever becomes a believer than if the unbelieving spouse was not married to a believer, more likely, not guaranteed. And even if that unbeliever does not become a believer, the grace at work in the life of the believing spouse tends to have a positive effect on the unbeliever's thinking, behavior, you name it, which is still a win for the community at the very least. If someone is going to persist in being a non-believing secularist, the next best thing short of becoming a believer is to adopt all sorts of Judeo-Christian ethics and values anyway. In church, the same sort of sentiment is true for parenting. And we get a window into that in verse 14. Because of the believing spouse, their children are holy in a way that the children wouldn't be were it not for the believing parents. In that case, they would be, as Paul says it, unclean. Again, this is not a guarantee that the children of the believing parent will become believers, nor is it a guarantee that the children of non-believing parents will not become believers. However, it is the case that a believing parent has a non-zero spiritual effect on his or her children that apparently tends to override the influence of an unbelieving spouse. Children are better off having one believing parent than no believing parent. And that's because Christ at work and the life of a believer through the Holy Spirit is so powerful that it influences everybody around them, especially their children. Two believing parents is even better. But one believing parent isn't nothing. And my goodness, is that a refreshing word for those of you who are trying your best to raise your children, but feel as though you are being contradicted by your unbelieving spouse, or maybe your unbelieving ex-spouse if you're divorced and sharing custody. And I mean, isn't this, isn't this just a tsunami of encouragement for all parents, regardless of their marital circumstances, especially when we consider the level of guilt that so many parents are walking around with these days? Oh, my word. It is commonplace, if not normative, just know this, parent or not, for parents to believe that their zeal for sacrificially loving their children is going absolutely nowhere. Or maybe even having a negative effect because of how they judge the efficacy of their parenting according to some sort of arbitrary behavior rubric or according to the comparisons they make to other parents and children. It is mind-blowing to me how many parents think they are totally failing even though they are honoring the Lord, in my view, in so many ways. But believing parents, despite your inadequacies and imperfections, do you see, do you see this in the text? 
that God is always doing more in the lives of your children than you think, not less. Do you believe that? Your labor in the Lord is never in vain. Sometimes I think about the stories of those who have become Christians after their believing parents have passed away. Those parents went to their grave with such sadness in their hearts. But God was at work in ways that they never knew about. That is, think about it, until they run into their own children and the new heaven and earth. Can you imagine? So here's what we're saying. It's a complicated argument in this text, but you all are doing a fantastic job. Here's what we're saying, married people. Stay where you are. There's goodness there. Even if you have an unbelieving spouse, it doesn't mean it will be easy, but God is with you and at work in you. And your faithfulness is making a big difference in the life of your spouse and in your children. They are becoming spiritually set apart in very meaningful ways, and some of them will ultimately repent of their sin and put their hope in Christ. Some of them, not all, but some of them will wake up one morning and realize, I am a sinner, and Christ died for people like me. That will happen for some people because of your faithfulness. And if we have more time, I could tell you so many stories of exactly this. But we don't have full control of our marital circumstances, do we? Which is why Paul says in verse 15 that if the unbelieving spouse wants to leave the marriage, you can let them go. You don't have to wring your hands. You don't have to grovel at their feet trying to convince them to stay. Let them go peaceably, not smearing them behind their backs, but speaking as well of them as you can while still being honest about your pain with trusted family and friends. And for the spiritually anxious, concerned that, you know, now there's no way this unbelieving spouse you love so desperately will ever know Christ. I take Paul's reminder here in verse 16 to be a consolation. How do you know, believing wife or husband, if you are going to save them anyway? It's not ultimately in your hands. It's in the Lord's hands. So entrust your spouse to the Lord. want to end, I'm, I recognize I'm changing gears just a tiny bit, but I want to kind of go back to something we talked about at the end of, of chapter 6 here as we close. Chapter 6 and chapter 7 are tough for a lot of people. I think they are particularly tough, though, for people who have been victimized in horrifying ways, sexually, uh, physical abuse, in marriage, outside of a marriage. And I just want to say that the social response to that is generally to give some sort of platitudes, like, hey, that what you experience. It, it doesn't define you. That's not who you really are, something like that. I appreciate the sentiments behind them. But here's the thing. If God doesn't exist, those sentiments aren't grounded in much of anything. But if God does exist, those of us who are in Christ Jesus, going back to the end of chapter 6, are temples of the Holy Spirit. Your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. And I want to emphasize to you that no action against you by anybody can change that. At the end of the day, if you are in Christ and the Holy Spirit lives in you, that is that. You are a temple bestowed with so much dignity 
and honor. And I w- I'm happy to have a conversation. I don't know if any other worldview promises what Christianity promises to those who have been hurt in that way. Amen.